I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. In today, I hope I'm live. (laughs) In today's live stream, I'm going to give you 14 reasons why you should believe that the empty tomb is a real historical event that Jesus, he not only died under being crucified under Pontius Pilate, but that uh, he was buried. And then three days later, that tomb was found empty by eyewitnesses. I think you should believe this is historical. I'll give you 14 uh, lines of evidence or reasons why. And then at the end, I will give you the most common objection I've found to the empty tomb. The, The biggest reason that I see why people like come against and say, nope, that didn't happen. That's not historical. It just couldn't be the case. So, um, so welcome. If, if you're new, uh, my name is Mike Winger. If it's your first time here, I recommend that you, um, you know, if you want to learn to think biblically about everything and answer objections to Christianity, I recommend you subscribe and click that little bell icon. I have some special announcements I'll be making today at the end of the stream. If you can't wait, um, and you're, and you're not live, you can just skip to the end if you want, but I'm going to, I'm going to save that for the end. Cause I'm going to ask you guys to potentially go watch another video. Um, from here. But let's dig into the content today. Here's uh, 14 reasons why you should believe the tomb is empty, historically, historical verification for the empty tomb. And it's also going to be um, uh, the, uh, the this live stream is also going to involve a Q&A at the end. So I'll, I'm going to pull through all these reasons. It'll be a ton of information, a lot of data. You can go back and watch it again. You can, you can forward this video to someone else so they can hear these reasons and think them through themselves. Um, and then I'll take your questions as, for as long as I can. I have until about 6.20 today, 6.20 p.m. And then I've got to cut off because there's something coming a little later tonight. I'll tell you about later. A special secret event. Okay. Um, first reason first. Let's dig in. Um, by the way, thanks guys for joining me. I do see you there. Um, uh, my, my mods are there. Sarah, AJ, um, I, I see rock and roll. I see you guys there. I appreciate you guys being there. They're making sure the chat stays a good environment. Okay, so the first reason, number one, is uh, a term that historians call multiple attestation. That is, there's multiple sources attesting to the truthfulness of a specific thing. So what we have with the uh, empty tomb of Jesus is we have it actually recorded in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, these now already some people just slow down. Like if you're if you're like a skeptic who's thinking, you know, already thinking, what kind of bologna sauce is Mike going to spill out of his mouth today? I just want you to make sure you understand me before you try to refute me here. Think it through. Okay, so there's four sources. These are four different documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in their uh, in, in the documents themselves, in every one of these Gospels, the empty tomb and the burial of Christ, this burial and resurrection tomb-related information, it's flowing with the narrative. It consistently flows through, meaning it's not like, say, for instance, in Mark, a lot of Mark's uh, information is kind of staccato, if you know the musical terms. Um, it, it's sort of like he jumps into a story, and then he jumps into a new story, and into a new story. But the death... The burial and the resurrection is one story, one single narrative story, and that's the case in all of the Gospels. But there's more information than this. As scholars have found, as they study and compare the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's independent sources between all four of them specifically relating to the empty tomb. So while the narrative flows, implying that it's coming from a single source, the sources themselves seem independent because they're not just depending on others. For instance, uh, Matthew and Luke often quote Mark. They often quote Mark, but not about the empty tomb. They're just having an independent account of that empty tomb. So it's non-Markan material. It's unique to Matthew, unique to Luke, unique to Mark, and unique to John in these different 
attestations. But there's more. Um, there's the sermon sermons in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have these early church sermons, and they predate the book of Acts. They're, they're, now, some people would think that the book of Acts was wholesale made up on the spot. That is, I think... I think that's a whole different debate. Well, I wanted I want to do a video one day on the historicity of Luke and just Luke and Acts and taking that would just be a neat video. But um, tons of data there and way too much for today. So for now, I'll say this: I'm going to give you what historians and critical you know scholars of the New Testament have agreed upon. This is not my information. I'm making up on the spot here. Um, in the Book of Acts, there's certain Semitisms or Semitic phrases and terms that don't fit with the writing style of Luke, implying that Luke is quoting an actual person from before his time. So these Semitisms are embedded in the preachments in Acts, where you have Peter giving the gospel out to people, things like that. And he's giving the empty tomb narrative in those preachments, meaning that that information predates Luke and it predates the writing of the Book of Acts. And so we have additional sources there. Um, there's there's implications in Mark that the uh, that the empty tomb is a pre-Markan story that Mark is is relaying to us, but it's not coming from him. So here we have um, at least six sources, six different sources for the empty tomb narrative. Now to compare this to other things in ancient history, I realize this that first century information we, we know very little about the first century compared to what happened during it. But the information we have about the empty tomb coming from six sources, that's pretty impressive. We have historical pay dirt. When historians see two different sources talking about one event, they consider that total confirmation. Like, yeah, two different sources, one event, that event probably happened. Here we have at least six. So, um, yeah, listen up. That's just one reason, okay? That's just one reason to believe in the historicity of the empty tomb. Here's another one. So we have multiple attestation. The second reason is early attestation or evidence that the stories didn't aren't just um, in lots of sources, but they go back to early sources. And this is ideal. This is exactly what the historian wants as they're looking at history. I want lots of people telling me about it, and I want them to tell me about it shortly after it happened. Um, first off, I'll say this. Every document in our New Testament, in, in, the, in the Bible that we've got, in, uh, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, all those documents, they're all first century documents. In the 1700s, there was a lot of theories going out there. If you were reading scholars back then, you may have been convinced that these documents were written much, much later, in the second or third century even. And um, that's not the case, okay? So if you had if you had followed the majority then, you would have been in error. Um, but now we have more evidence to support that these are all first century documents. So every single one of these goes back to the first century. All the sources I've mentioned, and some I haven't mentioned yet that I'll get into in a little bit. But it gets better than that. Because Mark's source material for his narrative in the Gospel of Mark, uh, that source material actually probably goes to within seven years, seven years of the events that took place. Now, this is even if you take a late dating view of the writing of Mark. You could say Mark was written in 70 AD, you know, or it was composed near 60 AD. That's a late date for Mark. Now, there's a case for an early date, but let's let's take the late date even. We're still saying that the content of Mark goes back to within seven years of the events themselves. Rudolf Pesch, scholar, says that um, this is partly because Mark never bothers using the name of the high priest. These are some reasons why he says it's within seven years. Um, if it was contemporary with Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, and he's, his high priestly duties were from AD 18 to 37, well, this would explain not needing to specify which high priest is in view. He doesn't mention his name because the content that he's getting is coming from within his still, you know, his his uh, tenure as high priest. I'll give you an example to make it easier to understand. 
Um, if, if I'm going to say something about Donald Trump, who's president right now, I just say the president. I just say, hey, the president. But if I want to say something about Obama, who was president before, or, or Bush, or one of the Bushes, then I need to mention their names. I have to say President Obama, President Bush. I have to be specific about which one I'm talking about. But if they're currently in office, I just mention them by their title because everyone knows. So the story in Mark has these sort of um, uh, unintentional hints at its early dating within seven years. Uh, there's more information, though. There's an expression in Mark that is used um, that is the phrase on the first day of the week when they come to visit the tomb is on the first day of the week. Now, later on in church history, by the time even the epistles are being written, the common terminology here is the third day on the third day because they would date it from the day of his crucifixion. But Mark, seeming to preserve an even earlier tradition, is just calls it the first day of the week. So this is one of the reasons why Rudolf Pesch suggests that it's within seven years. So not long after the events of Jesus' death, they changed the terminology to the third day, just like it is in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but here we have on the first day of the week. It's, it's awkward in the Greek, um, and it seems to come from an Aramaic expression, which pushes it back as well to an authentic Aramaic you know, story from within a very brief period of time. Also, this is kind of neat. Mark's narrative, it's... It's just super straightforward. It's, it's, we don't notice this when you're reading the Bible just for devotional purposes, but you don't notice how straightforward and sort of plain it is. Um, it's unadorned. In other words, it shows no signs of legendary development. Let me give you an example of legendary development. Um, Mark, of course, talks about how Jesus, he was crucified, he was buried, he raised again, they came to see the tomb, and they heard the announcement of his resurrection, and then were told to go see the disciples and tell them, and that Jesus was going to appear to Peter and the, and the rest. That's that's the Mark story in a nutshell. But when we compare this to later, later um, Gnostic Gospels, or Gospels that were written by people who were not really connected to eyewitnesses, they were just trying to kind of hijack some version of Christianity for themselves. Um, they have legendary development in their gospels. One of the interesting stories around this is from the gospel of Peter. The gospel of Peter is a second century document and I'll read it to you now. This is from the gospel of Peter, uh, section 35 through 42. I'm just reading to you the narrative and listen to how different it is. This is what it sounds like when legendary development creeps in, which shows you that it's a later writing and not an early source. Here's the gospel of Peter on the, on the, uh, the day of the resurrection. It says, But in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers were safeguarding it two by two in every watch, there was a loud voice in heaven. And they saw that the heavens were opened and that two males who had much radiance had come down from there and had come near the sepulcher. But that stone which had been thrust against the door, having rolled by itself, went a distance off to the side and the sepulcher opened and both the young men entered. And so these those soldiers having seen, awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too were present, safeguarding. So the first thing we notice in the Gospel of Peter is there's this loud voice that wakes them up so that they can witness these things. Now the witnesses in the Gospel of Peter, they're not going to be the women. It's going to be, it's going to happen in front of this, the centurions, the elders, the elders of the people of Israel. So we're talking about the Jewish leadership. They're all there. Literally, the elders are sleeping around the tomb because this will bolster the, the, the you know, the story because we'll get, we'll get there later. But women witnesses are not a, a positive thing in their view. So the gospel of Peter changes the story to make it sound more robust. Uh, and then we go on in, in verse or section 39, he says, and while they were relating what they had seen and they, and they, uh, again, they see three males who have come out 
from the sepulcher with the two supporting the other one and a cross following them. So these two angels are holding up Jesus is the idea. And there's a cross that comes out of the tomb. There's a cross that comes out of the tomb and it's following them like it's moving on its own. Listen to the description of these guys. It says, and the head of the two reaching unto heaven. Somehow they've grown because they got into the tomb. Two young men, radiant, but they went in the tomb. Now they've grown. Their heads reach up into heaven. But that of the one being led by a hand by them going beyond the heavens. So Jesus is now, he can't even see his head. He's, he's thousands of feet high. And then um, verse 41 or section 41. And they were hearing a voice from the heavens saying, have you made proclamation to the fallen asleep or to the dead? And an obeisance was heard from the cross. Yes. So the cross itself audibly speaks. This is what you call legendary development. Mark doesn't show these signs of legendary development. Now, there's a reason why the gospel of Peter is not in our Bible, right? This is what some, Peter didn't write it, right? Somebody else wrote this thing. It's a weird work from the second century. It shows you just um, how historical in nature the gospels are compared to things like this. But I go on. Um, Because Mark's content potentially being, you know, at least Rudolf Pesch thinks within seven years of of the of of the original events themselves, which is incredibly early. Two thousand years later, we have content that's that close. There's actually an earlier earlier source that we have in the New Testament. It's the earliest piece of your Bible, and it's in First Corinthians fifteen. So First um, Corinthians fifteen it records, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you guys. Um, it records this. So this is the statement um, that Paul relates to the Corinthians. And he, he writes this probably about 55 AD, okay? Maybe around 55 AD, he's writing 1 Corinthians, which is really near. I mean, we're talking within 25 years of, of, of the re- death and resurrection. Um, but the content itself doesn't originate with Paul. And I'm going to walk you through it to show you why, not me, but why the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority of scholars agree that this content goes way before Paul. So this is historical content dating to probably within five years, within five years of the actual uh, events themselves. So it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. Now these words right here are the first like red flags for the scholars. They tell us that this content, I delivered these terms, what I also received, is like a formula by which someone says, hey, I'm handing off to you official tradition, official like oral history that we have that's been handed to me and preserved and I'm handing it off to you. What's more is what what follows is written as a creed. Like it's, it's a, you know, we've heard of church creeds. Well, this would be the first creed in the church probably. And it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And that, that section right there, this is not a minority opinion. They believe this is within five years of the death and resurrection of Christ. And it traces to a Jerusalem source. So we're saying that the death, burial, and resurrection, it, notice it's a sequence. Death, he died, he was buried, he was raised. That this is going back to that very early source. Uh, Jerome Murphy O'Connor, he was was a he passed away, but he was a, a leading authority on Saint Paul and professor of the New Testament at the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem. He said the following: 
He said that a literary, literary analysis has produced complete agreement, and I quote him here, complete agreement among critical scholars that Paul introduces a quotation in verse 3b, which is the section I just read to you. Complete agreement. Um, then uh, how early is it? Well, within five years. Why do we say within five years? Um, well, Jesus' crucifixion, that's about 30 AD. Um, 1 Corinthians, again, was about 55 AD, but the saying is older, and he had to have received it. Well, Paul himself, he could have received it when he was converted, maybe about 33 AD. His conversion happens. He's in Damascus. He could have got it from the disciples there. There were already Christians there. They could have told him. So it could have happened right then. But at the latest, he would have had to have had it by 36 AD because Paul spent two weeks with Peter and James at Jerusalem. We read about this in Galatians 1. And we're just reading the text here as a historical document. Okay, Here's an ancient first century document written by the guy talking about his travels. He says, after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Now, here's something interesting. That word visit, it doesn't do it justice in the English. In the Greek, it's the word historesi. And here's the definition for it. I'll put some Greek up for you. I don't do that too often. But um, the for Greek, we give the root word, okay, historeo, but it's, it's historesi. It's just the way it's called the lexical form. So the lexical form is historeo, and it is knowing from knowing to ascertain by inquiry and personal examination. This is the verb from which the English word history is derived. Why is that significant? Because ancient historians would use this term to say, I'm going to examine like eyewitnesses to get the history, the details behind these events so that I can know them correctly. This is a term used not just to meant to visit Peter. No, it's way bigger than that. They're visiting to, he's visiting to get information, to get historical information. So he would have had to have had it by this time. And it seems likely he did because also in Galatians, we read that he, who he saw in this, in this trip was Peter and James, right? He saw no one other than what Cephas and, um, uh, didn't see any of the other apostles except James. So he saw Peter and James, those two guys, Cephas is the same as Peter. Well, in the first Corinthians creed, we read, um, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 and then he appeared to 500 brothers at once. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. The two he highlights are Peter and James. And that the two he saw in Jerusalem, uh, probably five or so years, five to six years after the death and resurrection of Christ, um, or at least the purported, if you're a skeptic on this. So we're saying here, this is why not me, but the, the vast majority, I'll quote a Gary Habermas here. He's one of the premier scholars on this topic. And he says, the vast majority of critical scholars who answer the question place Paul's reception of this material in the mid-30s AD. Mid-30s AD. Even more skeptical scholars generally agree. German theologian Walter Casper even asserts that we, here's Habermas quoting Casper, we have uh, here, therefore, an ancient text, perhaps in use by the end of 30 AD. Ulrich Wilkins declares that the material indubitably goes back to the oldest phase in all uh, oldest phase of all in the history of primitive Christianity. Here's my bottom line for you. And this is what I tweeted out earlier today. I was preparing for this and thinking about it. Christianity didn't start the belief in Jesus's resurrection. It was the belief in Jesus's resurrection that started Christianity. That's the thing. This death, burial, resurrection, and the testimony of the empty tomb, this started Christianity. It wasn't a later addition, later 
thing that was put onto Christianity. No, no, it's the core. That's how it began. Um, now, some people object, and I don't have time to get into all these objections today to do like a full, you know, Bible study on 1 Corinthians 15. One day, maybe I'll do that. Um, uh, some guys like Richard Carrier have really fanciful theories about 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I think that if you have a lot of confirmation bias, you may like his theories, but they don't stand up to just reading the text. I mean, if you really read Paul and study Paul, as I've spent quite a lot of time doing, you know there's no way Paul's talking about some space, some event out in the moon or in some place in space. It's just silly. Um, so anyhow, that's number three. Okay. That's number three. We have, so we have one multiply attested to early attestation within five years. We also have enemy attestation and we get this sort of, sort of through, um, roundabout means. Let me give it to you here. This is Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 12. It says, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So this is, this is the initial response as recorded by Matthew. Now you could have different ways of approaching the text, right? You could say, I believe the Bible. Therefore they told, they, you know, they said the, the, the disciples stole the body, but you could even be a skeptic. And you can start by saying, I don't believe the Bible is accurate. I don't believe it's true. I don't trust it. But here's what I can tell. I can tell there's first century records that the early church is trying to fight the spreading rumor that the disciples stole the body. And that that we can all agree on. They are. They're trying to fight the rumor that the disciples stole the body of Christ. Well, they're, how are they fighting it? They're explaining where the rumor came from. This means that it was really honestly, something the enemies were saying. Now, if there was no burial, if there was no tomb, and if it was never empty, why would they say the disciples stole the body? They're not doing it for people 2000 years later. This is happening in the moment in the first century. They're just saying, look, the disciples stole the body, which admits, it admits that there was really an empty tomb and the body could not be located. It admits that. That much is in admission there. Um, There's some other sources that give us this too. Um, Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo, which is a, a debate he's having sometimes when, uh, we do this sometimes too. Nowadays you have like these, uh, they would write like a dialogue. Justin Martyr's an apologist, early church apologist, second century. And he's, and he's writing like in a debate form where he writes out the arguments of his Jewish opponents who are non-Christians, who are not messianic. They don't follow Christ. And here's some of the things that he puts in the mouths of the opponents. In other words, what we're getting is in the middle of the second century, this is Justin Martyr's Dialogues with Trifo, uh, section 108. We're getting, and uh, this is what the Jews were saying to combat Christianity. So we can hear the enemy attestation. Here's what it says. Yet you not only have not repented after you learned that he rose from the dead, but as I said before, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, who we crucified, whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive, uh, now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. So, so this statement from Justin, he's arguing in, you know, with, with Trifo, this, this discussion's going on and he's saying, Hey, um, you Jews are continuing to spread the rumor, but that's not true. We didn't steal his body. His body wasn't stolen. No, he's really risen. And so there's more 
sort of unintentional admission from the enemies of the gospel saying that the empty tomb is actually a historical thing. Uh, Tertullian also wrote um, at the end of the second century in uh, Of Spectacles, section 30, um, he's quoting a Jewish claim there. And um, and here we again see how how the, the there, now don't get me wrong, there was there were Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. So he's quoting the, or excuse me, Jewish non-Christians. <laughs> he's quoting the Jewish non-Christians here. And it says, this is he whom his disciples secretly stole away that it might be said he had risen again, or the gardener abstracted that his lettuces might come to no harm from the crowds of visitants. What is he talking about lettuces for? This is kind of a funny section in Tertullian. What it's saying is that the the claim of the time, the claim of the time was um, trying to come up with other explanations for how the tomb got empty. And two explanations are offered. One, the disciples stole the body. The other, the gardener, because he was buried near a garden, the gardener didn't want people trampling his lettuces as they were visiting the tomb, so he took the body and buried it somewhere else. But apparently he didn't tell anybody, because now even more people are coming to the tomb to see it because it's empty instead of occupied. Um, but the, but this is just admitting, yes, there was an empty tomb. And that's the purpose of this video. I, I, I could deal with the objections, the, the claim the disciples stole the body. This is not tenable. You can't sustain that with reasonably but it proves that there really was an empty tomb, or at least it points to, to it. That's four. Let's look at number five. Number five is easy. Um, let's look at a list of all the competing traditions, all the, all the sources we have from history that say that Jesus wasn't buried and that the, or, or that he was buried and the tomb was still, was, was still occupied. Um, there are none. That's number five. There's no competing traditions. There's plenty of people wanting to refute Christianity at this stage, trying to refute it, arguing about it. None of them challenge the empty tomb. I think that's pretty significant. Number six, the testimony of women. And we're going to get in detail on this because this has been challenged a lot. And in the atheist community, um, if you're part of this atheist community that, that you know, you follow these things. You already you already are loading in your head why the testimony of women doesn't matter. But let me let me answer those objections and let me give you some specifics today. And by the way, I hope you guys this is a blessing for you. I hope this I'm, I'm jamming through tons of content today, and I plan on uh, doing a lot. I want this to be a resource you could watch again and again to gather these these sort of like uh, individual like pieces of ammo in a case that points towards the evidence for the empty tomb because the empty tomb points very clearly to the real literal resurrection of Christ. It's the only good explanation for that fact. Okay, how were women witnesses viewed? Um, well, first I should say this. Um, the, the, the gospel accounts record women as being the first ones to both find the tomb, to, to know where the tomb was, to find the tomb afterwards, to see the tomb was empty, and the first ones to see Jesus. And this is embarrassing for the time. Women were not respected as far as being witnesses, in particular for being witnesses. So let me give you some examples. Um, I have the Mishnah somewhere. Where did I put it? Ah, there's my Mishnah. Okay, so the Mishnah, this, these are Jewish writings, considered authoritative Jewish writings, part of the, the, the whole Talmud and the, the, the source material that they're going to look at, that Jews are looking at. And here's what the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah Chapter one, verse eight says, these are considered unfit witnesses. These are people who you should not listen to when they're witnesses. Gamblers with dice, those that lend with interest, pigeon racers, pigeon racers, eh, 
They know about you guys. Those who trade in the produce of the sabbatical year and slaves. This is the rule of those five people. All testimony that a woman is not fit to give, these are also not fit to give. That's how women are viewed at the time as witnesses. In fact, women could only testify to a couple things in court, and it was only generally if there was no men around that they would even allow a woman to testify. But she could testify to her virginity, or if her husband had died, she could go to testify, yes, he's really dead. There weren't really many other reasons why they would allow them to testify. Um, Josephus, he says that women were too lightheaded and brash to be credible witnesses. Josephus, first century uh, Roman, Jewish Roman historian. He says um, that they're too lightheaded or brash to be used, but two times he does use women as witnesses. Two times. When he's talking about the slaughters at Gamala and Masada, because they were the only survivors, there were no men to appeal to, that's the only time he uses women. That was the standard then. If there's no men, I guess we'll use the women. It hurts our case, but we'll do it. Now, is this, is this smart? Is this good? No, this is, the, this is the culture of the time. And it shows you how offensive it was to people that women were being used to substantiate the central doctrinal claim of Christianity that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why on earth are they using women if they're making it up, if it's not historical? Josephus, he even changed the book of Genesis, I'm not kidding, so that Isaac, instead of Rebekah, is the one receiving revelation from God. This is in the book of uh, his Antiquities, um, book one, uh, section 257. Um, if you compare you compare what he writes there to Genesis, it's like he's literally changing the text because he doesn't want a woman to be the one receiving the revelation from God. Like this is this is the milieu 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 of the time. I always pronounce that word wrong. Okay, that's the Jews. What about the Gentiles? What about the Gentile audience? How do they view women? See, this isn't like a Jewish thing. This is this is normal. Richard Bauckham, historian, he says women were were regarded as quote gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive in religious practices. That's how they were regarded back then. So they're not trusted. And he uses various sources for this. Um, I could post those if people are interested. You probably can take my word for it. But you can look at Juvenal, uh, Plutarch, um, Fronto, Felix, Clement of Alexandria, Celsus, um, where Origen quotes Celsus. Okay, there's some sources for you. Um, uh, Celsus, actually speaking of Celsus, he's a critic uh, of Christianity. He wants to destroy Christianity. He spends a lot of time mocking it and ridiculing it um, like a lot of people do today. So he's a second century philosopher, opponent to Christianity. And according to Origen, Celsus, he, 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 he talks about Celsus's attitude towards the fact that women were viewed as witnesses. Celsus actually uses this to attack Christianity, even there at its beginning. So he so here's what Origen said. Speaking next of the statements in the Gospels, that after his resurrection, he showed the marks of his punishment, how his hands had been pierced, he asks, Celsus asks, who beheld this? And discrediting the narrative of Mary Magdalene, who is related to have seen him, he replies, a half-frantic woman, as you state. Celsus's case against the resurrection was the fact that women had seen it happen. That's his case. Celsus also said only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. The, 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 the only Christian converts that they were getting in Celsus's opinion are, you know, dumb people like women. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, like it's clear 
that women as witnesses is a really bad thing if you're making up a story you want others to believe. This is why the Gospel of Peter's second century changed the witnesses to be these other guys, the elders and the and the centurions and, and the soldiers. They, they blew up the story to make it more more robust, which which would help them then, but would hurt us now. Now we look back and go, no, that's fake. That, that was made up. Um, even the disciples didn't take their word for it. In Luke 24, 11, it says that the women, when they came to them, it says these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. They didn't believe them right away. So this is, this is pretty good evidence for what we call right, embarrassment, the criterion of embarrassment. Um, to put it the way uh, Richard Bauckham says in, in um, uh, talking about this issue, he says, since these narratives do not seem well designed to carry conviction of the time or to convince people, they are likely to be historical. That is believable by people with a historically critical mindset today. This is uh, in his book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I think it's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, page 259. But that's 2002. So that was before he revised it, I think. So it might be on a different page in this current, because this is version two. Um, Bauckham also lists 12 scholars, 12 different scholars who support the idea that women are unlikely inventions. And he adds that, oh, my books are falling down. He adds that serious attempts to refute this argument are surprisingly rare. Like people don't even really try to refute this. Um, like Mike Lycona records this in his book and he adds even more people to that list of names. And I can even add things like, I don't know, Bart Ehrman, uh, Bart Ehrman, he comes up with an alternative scenario. Some of you guys skeptics, you know who Bart Ehrman is, right? If you're a skeptic or, or Muslim, you know who Bart Ehrman is. And there's like a book avalanche going on. We had an earthquake last night too, by the way, that was interesting. Um, California. Okay, so Bart Ehrman, he um, initially, he believed that the empty tomb was historical. Um, he said it was almost certainly historical. This was years ago. After, it seems like it was after his debate or during his debate with um, uh, William Lane Craig that he changed his view and he says he doesn't think the empty tomb is historical. And he goes on to say that he thinks the women uh, made up the story. They made it up. Um, about the women because women like women. So they wanted to put women in the story. So they just fabricated it, except we've already talked about how this goes back to so early and in the area of Jerusalem, there's, you know, there's good reasons why that's not the case, but here's what skeptics don't know. Bart Ehrman plays a lot of games with reality. Okay. And, um, I'm just being honest here. I'm not trying to, he does. Okay. He plays a lot of games with reality. He, on one side, he says the women made it up. The women made it up because they like women. So they wanted to put women in the story. But then he goes on to say he doesn't think that that is a very smart thing to say. I mean, literally, I'm going to see if I can read from my notes here. I just accidentally covered them all up. But um, Bart Ehrman, he says that women uh, making up the story is something he doesn't think is actually reasonable, but it's more reasonable than saying Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, he says an, a, a, a historical reconstruction of the events is that's unreasonable, is better than believing a miracle. This is simply his hesitance to believe in anything miraculous. So it's it's circular reasoning here. He's And this is clear when you look at enough of his material on the content. The reasonable conclusion is this. The story of women finding the empty tomb is included because women found the empty tomb. And it was so well known and so genuinely part of the story. And the people recording it were committed to truth. So they left it in there as is, even though it made it harder to share the truth of the gospel of Christ. It actually made it more difficult. And this Christians keep this in mind. 
We don't change the gospel to make it easier to communicate to people. We have to give them the actual gospel of Christ. I don't have to placate people with it. I have to deliver the truth and let them respond as they will. Um, just a side note there. Um, Geza Vermesh, he's an unbelieving Bible scholar. Geza Vermesh. Um, he is called the greatest Jesus scholar of his time, and he's not a Christian. He said that female witnesses had no standing in a male-dominated Jewish society. And so these are some of the reasons why he would support um, this as well. Okay, so that was number six, the testimony of women. The testimony of women. There's another brief one I'll hear, number seven. I'll give you. Number seven is that uh, the Jewish practice of noting the gravesite of spiritual leaders. This is something Mike Lycona puts in his book, um, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, a Historiographical Approach, which is a really interesting book. And it's very hard to read. It's very long and you have to be committed if you want to read through it. I'm just being real with you. Uh, but I have read through it and I found it to be very rewarding, um, very interesting and uh, something worth thinking about. So in his book, he talks about how there's this actual Jewish practice at the time where you would note the burial site of a spiritual leader. And Jesus was a well-known spiritual leader. He had a large following, although yes, he was very controversial at the time, but of course it makes sense. It's just rational to say that they would note the site of his burial and not be clueless about what happened to his body. Number eight, eighth piece of evidence that points towards the empty tomb being historically true. That is, this story came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the worst possible location to make up stories about Jerusalem. Think about it. Like if I'm going to make up a story I want to make it up about a place far away where you can't verify it, where you have to kind of take my word for it. And that's more common in the ancient world. For instance, in the life of Apollonius, which we, Apollonius of Tyana, which we've talked about, and I have a whole video on that. Um, the, the author of the life of Apollonius makes up weird, nutty stuff about India because no one who's reading his work has been to India, right? He's not going to make it up about Rome. He's not going to make it up about the locations where these people are. He makes up stuff about India, about them having giant fish cows, right? With who grow scales because they eat so much fish that the cows grow scales. Like, yeah. So that's the kind of stuff you get when you're making things up. Make it up about a play, a faraway place. But this happens in Jerusalem. The story comes from Jerusalem. It spreads in Jerusalem. It's believed in Jerusalem. The fact that it's a Jerusalem source is evidence for the historicity of the content, not for it being fabricated. Number nine, number nine, Joseph of Arimathea seems historical. So I'm going to give you several reasons why he's historical. Why am I bringing him up? Him up? Um, well, in Mark and John, we read about a guy who actually gave his tomb to the purpose of, of burying Jesus. And his name is Joseph, and he's from a place called Arimathea. Uh, Mark and John both record it, so it's multiply attested. We have two different different sources here. They're both in the Bible, but they, they weren't written by the same authors and they're not coming from the same exact tradition. They're not quoting each other, right? So these are independent sources and even the order of the events that the way they happen, he goes and he asks for the body, then he gets the body, they bury, the order of the events themselves are consistent in, in Mark and John, different sources. So there's sort of indirect confirmation right there. Also, Arimathea, we, we've identified, most likely, Arimathea is uh, Ramathion Zophim. So, Arimathea, Ramathion, this is probably the same place. It's four or five miles north, northwest of Jerusalem. Now, that's going to be important in a minute because, again, the story came from Jerusalem. And we're making up a story about a guy that's just stone's throw away, who's a real guy, who turns out to be very well known, right? Because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the leading people of Israel, this group of guys that were well known to the Jews. All their names were known. And so here we have an early source, Jerusalem source, about a well-known guy who lives near Jerusalem, who has a tomb in Jerusalem. And it's also embarrassing. Here's the criterion of embarrassment that helps support Joseph of Arimathea as the guy that does the burial. Um, He's a member of the Sanhedrin who is classically against Jesus, yet he's the one who buries Jesus, not John, none of the other disciples. No one's around him to bury him. He doesn't have his own family tomb somewhere nearby. Nothing like that. Nope. It is a a guy who is not even one of the disciples. This is embarrassing to the disciples. Um, and he's part of the Sanhedrin, which is a group that's classically known to be against Jesus, not for him. And he comes and he does this. And um, if it were invented, I would expect John to write that the disciple who loved Jesus put him in a tomb, you know, or or something else along those lines. So the point here is it's um, it's testable to the original hearers. They they can they can go to this nearby town and, and talk to Joseph of Arimathea. Um, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The tomb itself is known. It's a known location in Jerusalem. These incidental details speak of historicity. Um, there's a lot more actually about this. Uh, Matthew twenty seven fifty seven says that Joseph was a rich man. That's consistent with what we read about about the tomb. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, in John uh, 12, 42 and 43, it says that some of the people in authority believed Jesus, but hid it. So we have here just kind of this random detail thrown in the middle of John that's consistent with the end of John. Uh, now you might think, well, John's a genius and he's he's crafting this careful story, but I guarantee you the same guy who says John's a genius says that John contradicts Mark and M- Matthew and Peter. And so I think there's something going on there when people are kind of like fighting, uh, against themselves with certain claims and statements they make about the gospels. Um, and it makes sense. You guys, Jesus had a following right now with, with this online stuff. I have, I have gotten by God's grace. I've gotten something of a following online. And when I had trouble with YouTube, I was like, Hey guys, I need help. You guys all reached out to Twitter. Tons of people tweeted out. Tons of people sent mail and, and, uh, messages and all this because there's people that, that care about what I'm doing. Well, how much more Jesus? I mean, there's people that cared about him. And Joseph of Arimathea being part of the Sanhedrin, he was there at the trial. Like he knows that Jesus was railroaded through. He knows it was unjust. He knows he doesn't belong on that cross. So it makes sense that he would then go and say, hey, I'm one of the followers. I'm one of the secret disciples. Let me at least give an honorable burial. Now there's an objection to this we're going to come to at the end. So stick, stay tuned for that because this is, this, is, this is an area right here. What I'm talking about right now, this is what the skeptics will attack. And I want to respond to that uh, to give, give you skeptics. I love you. I want to give you good reasons to be Christians because there is, um, I don't know, about a million good reasons to be Christians. And I'm going to slowly give you all of them um, on my YouTube channel. <laughs> so uh, number 10, the 10th piece of evidence, the description of the tomb that we read about in the Bible, it shows signs of historicity. What do I mean? I mean, if it had been written later, if it had been invented at a later time in a different place, it wouldn't be written the way it is. Now, there's three different kinds of stone tombs, tombs that are carved out of stone, that we've discovered that are from the first century, from the time of Jesus, like pre-70 AD or around that time. Um, the descriptions in the various gospels, they describe a specific kind of tomb. It's called an acrosolia, A-C-R-O. S-O-L-I-A, acrosolia. This is also called a bench tomb. There's a bench that you can lay the body on. There's different ways they would do this. This is one of the most expensive kinds of tombs, so you would have to be a rich man to be able to afford it. It's, it's, it's a less common tomb for wealthy people. It also, 
being one of the more expensive ones, it's one of the few tombs that actually had a round stone, you know, door. It wasn't really a door, but right, you know, blocking the entryway. Other ones had different size and shaped stones. This had a round disc shaped stone rolled in front of it, rolled downhill into a slot. It was easy to push down into place, but very difficult to remove. So the bench and the stone go together. And that's the description in the text. It's of a real tomb. These things connect. Um, only a few of these tombs have been discovered. They all, every one of them dates to the time of Christ. They're all uh, reserved for rich and important people, such as like the members of the Sanhedrin. Um, they're all found near the traditional site for Jesus's grave. Did you catch that? The traditional site for Jesus's grave is where they've actually found these tombs, all of these kinds of tombs. So that is um, just more confirmation. I mean, how many pieces of evidence do you need all pointing in the same direction before you go, okay, all right, it's historical. The empty tomb is historical. Um, now, some will resist it because as soon as you realize that the empty tomb is historical, you're very close to realizing Jesus rose from the dead. Let's see, there's more. Um, the tomb is said to belong to Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. That seems likely. Um, uh, the tomb is said to be um, in a garden, which is a likely place for a tomb back then. Specific tombs have been found just outside the garden gate in Jerusalem, the garden gate. And so there's a connection that's there. Uh, the Jewish high priest, John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janaeus, uh, they have tombs that have been found near there. Um, therefore, it could have been a prestigious burial place, that location, the garden area uh, near the garden, uh, garden gate. So it was also said to be a tomb in which no one else was laid. Now, tradition, uh, Jewish belief then is like, hey, someone who's been crucified, their body, they're like defiled. They're like unclean. There's an uncleanness going on there. They, they receive the death penalty and that they're unclean. So it would be considered defilement to put their body in a tomb where anyone else was already there. Now, because they would have multiple people in a tomb, they lay the body out after it decayed. They put it in an ossuary, little bone box about that big, about as big as a femur, longest bone in the body. Then they would put that box in the tomb, in a, in a, in a crevice in the, in, in one of the walls or something like that. And they would have that table out there for the next person, the next family member who died. So then they would just continually populate the tomb. But this is a tomb in which no one else had laid. And that's consistent. They wouldn't have wanted to typically lay a body of someone who'd been crucified in a tomb where someone else was. It would be just looked very down upon in a very strong way. So these are incidental details that occur across multiple different sources that say, yeah, that looks historical. Number 11. I don't have enough fingers for this. Um, the day of the burial was probably the day of preparation. Okay. So, uh, Joseph was able to buy a shroud, um, they could do that on the day of preparation. They could still buy a shroud. That's Mark 15, 46. Multiple sources say that it was the day of preparation, which is the Friday before sundown. And this is uh, Luke 23, 54 and John 19, 31. So we have different sources incidentally all pointing to the timing being consistent. Like it reads like it's history. Like, yeah, that's how it would be if it was really happening. Um, all right, there's more. Number 12. Women observing the burial has marks of historicity, specifically women observing the burial. Um, let me see what time it is. All right, we're doing good. 549. I'm happy. Okay, number 12. Um, in Mark's account, we read about women observing the burial uh, multiple times. In Mark 1540, they observe the crucifixion. In Mark 1547, they observe the burial. In Mark 16.1, they observe the empty tomb. Now, remember last week's study, we talked about evidence that the Gospels are eyewitnesses. And we talked about how the use of names gives you a clue that they're the eyewitness that's being appealed to in this passage. Well, this is, this is consistent here too. Um, so 
Joseph Blinsler, uh, he did a study of this and he said the list of women is unchanged from Mark's source story because of the way the women's names appear. Um, there's, I'll just refer you to Joseph Blinsler. I'm trying to give reference to guys other than me. I'm not making stuff up. I'm not coming up with anything new. I'm just telling you things that these guys already know that point to the historicity of the empty tomb. Um, so the women's accounts have marks of historicity uh, for, for lots of reasons. We talked about embarrassment and all that. Um, okay. What else we got? Um, 13. The Jewish practice of noting the gravesite. Oh, I guess I don't have that many. I put that one in there twice. It must be really important. <laughs> I guess I don't have as many as I thought. All right. The, the real 13. Um, no, I, oh gosh. Okay. The last two on my list, like I literally just duplicated it. So this is 12 reasons to believe in the empty tomb. And then I'm going to give you one argument against the empty tomb. Forgive me, guys. Um, okay, one argument against the empty tomb, and here it is. And this is this is what um, actually Paulo Gia, the guy that I debated on the on the evidence for the resurrection, he did bring up this after the debate. I was hoping he'd bring it up in the debate because it was going to be an ambush moment for me. Darn. Um, Roman practices of crucifixion would not allow people to be taken off the cross the day they were crucified. Generally speaking, this is true stories. This is true history here. Romans would leave you on the cross as a display to everyone, everyone around that you don't mess with Rome. They would not allow you to take the body off. They wouldn't allow you to have an honorable burial. None of that. That didn't happen in Rome. This was like not what Romans did. And we know that as we read about from Josephus about typical practices for Roman crucifixion. And so here's what they do. Uh, the skeptic will say, hey, this one fact of history that Romans generally did not allow you to remove bodies from the cross, it overrules all this stuff. And it shows us, even though we have, you know, 12 lines of evidence that point towards the historicity of the empty tomb, it overrules all of those lines of evidence because we have a general practice of Rome. But there's a problem here with arguing from general to specific, right? Like, it's generally true that, you know, say, um, Hispanic men are five foot eight or something like, I don't know what their height is on average, but let's say it's generally true. They're five foot eight. And therefore a guy comes to me, he goes, Hey, I'm Hispanic. And he says, and I'm six foot two. I don't say you're not six foot two because Hispanic men are generally five foot. Like you, you don't argue from the general to the specific because we know that that's exactly the thing. General rules of thumb are just general, uh, but there's a bigger issue with it. And it's this, the same guy, Josephus, who I have right here, not him, but his book, the Josephus, the same guy that tells us from the first century about Roman practices of crucifixion. He also writes that the Romans made specific exceptions to that rule for the Jews in Israel. Let me read to you what happened in his book, the war of the Jews, um, section 317. He writes about how these Idumeans or these, these mercenaries were hired by Rome. Rome didn't have enough soldiers. So they hired these mercenaries to come in to put down rebellion that was going on in Jerusalem. And the Idumeans didn't know the normal Roman ways of handling Jews. They know how Romans handle other things, right? They don't know how Romans handle Jews. So they treat the Jews the way they normally treat everyone else. They kill them and they don't allow them to be buried properly. And they freak out over it. So we read here in uh, section 317, I'll just read it to you. Nay, they proceeded to that degree of impiety as to cast away their dead bodies without burial. Although the Jews used to take so much care of the burial of men that they took down those who were condemned and crucified and buried them before the going down of the sun. You see, Rome realized that with the Jews, they needed to have 
a couple special rules, right, to avoid violence, to avoid rebellion. One of the rules that they that they succumb to, and they said, "All right, fine, Jewish Jewish guys, we'll let you take your bodies off the cross. We'll let you bury them that night. We'll let you avoid." the shame of having these crucified people stay up on the cross. This goes back to Deuteronomy where it says like, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree and you will not allow them to stay overnight. So they were obeying the Torah when they did this. So it's actually known Jewish practice to violate the normal Roman issues of, uh, of how they handle crucifixion victims. Meaning every piece of evidence points to the empty tomb. I don't know of any good evidence that points against it. I tried to find it actually in preparation. And there may be an argument I haven't heard. So don't think I'm trying to avoid dealing with them. Maybe there's an argument I haven't heard. I haven't heard a good one. I'd like to hear one. That if I have like 12, 13 good arguments pointing to the historicity of the empty tomb and your only argument against it is ultimately, um, you know, that that really implies Jesus rose from the dead. So I don't like it. Well, then you, may, you don't have to like it for it to be true. Um, so I hope that this is uh, something that, that is useful to you and useful to others. I'm going to go to your guys' questions. We'll do the Q&A now. And um, I'm going to continue doing, uh, for the next few weeks, I'm going to keep doing Q and, uh, not Q and uh, videos that you know focus on, probably for the next month or so, month and a half, focus on the resurrection of Christ, evidence for the resurrection, challenges to the resurrection. And today it was the empty tomb, just one piece in the puzzle. And I, I thought it'd be good to go into it in great detail and... Um, you guys, look, here's what blew me away when I studied this. 2,000 years later, we have this much evidence for the little details around the death and resurrection of Christ. There's an actual case, historical case for the resurrection of Jesus, for this miracle that is very strong. And I don't know of any sufficient rebuttal to it. Um, and I'm open to hearing them. Um, I don't think they'll work, but I'd like to at least confront them and deal with them, you know. So uh, before I go to your guys' questions, I have a quick announcement. And I've already got some questions. Thanks for asking, guys. Um, the announcement is this. Uh, I'm going to do a surprise live stream to reveal a secret project that I've been working on. And it's going to happen in half an hour at 6.30 p.m. And I'm going to go live, not on my channel. It'll actually be on uh, What Do You Meme, John McRae's channel. And me, John McRae from What Do You Meme, and Cameron Bertuzzi from Capturing Christianity, we've worked together to create 20 videos answering the um, the friendly atheist, also called the atheist voice, who has a very large YouTube channel. He has 20 arguments against God. We've answered all of them, and we're going to tell you about that video series. Uh, so I've put a link in the video description so you can follow that. When I sign off here, I'll remind you. Please check that out and join us over there. You can see John McRae's channel. He's got some really neat stuff too. Um, so we're going to talk about that project uh, then. All right, Austin Avenaki says... Uh, what are your thoughts on the Shroud of Turin? The fabric has been tested and attempted to be recreated. However, the image was cast on the fabric by way of light too bright to recreate. Uh, mahalo. Hey, Austin. Uh, Austin's in uh, Hawaii. He's told us before. So, um, uh, hey, man. Um, you know, I haven't studied the uh, Shroud of Turin enough. And here's the thing. Part of me thinks, um, hey, that's really interesting. Like, what if it's true? What if the Shroud of Turin is, 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 is this big piece of evidence we can add to our arsenal? Another part of me says, because I don't know it well enough, I, I won't use it because I don't want to bring in evidence that I later regret because I don't, I don't need the shroud to prove Christianity. So I'm going to make sure I vet it carefully first. And I haven't even done the vetting yet. Um, so I haven't studied it, haven't looked into it in detail, just casually here and there. And I don't know the answer to tell you the truth. Um, so Lady Samurai says, does Gary Habermas have a list of the scholars that he has recorded that accepts the minimal facts of the resurrection? If so, where can we find it? Um, what he's, if you go to GaryHabermas.com, 
go to his website. He has tons of free material there, including, I don't know if he has a full list or not, um, but he has way more than people say. In 2005, he published a paper in the, I think it was the Journal for Historical Jesus Studies. I think that's what it was. He published a paper. That paper is available on his site, actually even more content than the edited version that went in the journal. Tons of footnotes where he talks about lots of sources. And what he does in that paper, I, I read it in prep for this actual discussion. In that paper, he actually lists not just scholars who agree with him, but he, he lists and quotes scholars who are saying that, you know, this is the, the consensus view of other scholars. So it's not like we have one scholar. We have multiple scholars who are saying, yeah, this is consensus view. Um, and, and he has that on his website there. I, I don't have the link because I... Uh, I don't think I saved it. It's somewhere in my notes. Maybe I can just find it real quick and put it in the chat for you. Um, I think I can. Yeah, I can. It's right here. And I can't see my screen though because my camera's blocking it. Just a second. Let me get this link for you and then I will send it. And then I'll do the next question. Okay, so it's, this is going to go into the chat right now. And there you go. There's one one location, and, and no, it doesn't have everything you're looking for, but it has some really good stuff that will, I think, help you out. Um, okay, Chris Smith says, why do some critics question Habermas as being a reliable source? Is that a sufficient argument? No, I don't think it's... I think they question him because his, they don't want... I don't think they want his arguments to stand. I think that what he's saying is very powerful and very strong uh, evidence for Christianity. He gives them all the ground they want. He says, fine. I'll throw out all my evidence except the evidence that we have like a consensus of scholars on or at least a majority. Um, and so he only uses majority scholarship opinions and he still builds a strong case for the resurrection. And that's like really annoying if you don't want to believe the resurrection. So they go ad hominem and they attack his character. Oh, well, he hasn't published enough and he hasn't written enough stuff. And it's like, well, you know, they need a better response than that, in my opinion. Um, he puts his content up there on his website, like I posted for uh, for you to check out, and I, I do recommend you do. And he's not the only scholar saying these things. So you, even if you discredit Gary Habermas, you, you haven't discredited all of the other scholars that uh, that he is quoting. Okay, so uh, Josie JQ says, uh, some scholars have considered the guard at the tomb account in Matthew uh, 27 to be unreliable. How would you defend that text? Um, I don't... I don't know of the the case they bring against the... I've, I've heard people mention it, but I don't know of the case they bring. How do they build a case that this didn't happen? Um, I don't know how they build that case, so I, I can't respond to it. Maybe, maybe I'll get into that in my studies in the next month or so and be able to give you a better answer there, Josie. Uh, Jacob Schuyler said, or Siler, Jacob Siler says, Can you cover Israel-only preterism in a video? Probably not anytime soon, Jacob. Um probably not anytime soon. I've just got so much other stuff I'm, I'm planning on doing right now. So I'm sorry to tell you, buddy. I, I wish I could. Um, but I do have a debate on preterism. It's not Israel only preterism, but I do have a debate on preterism that um, is online. You could just, just put Mike Winger preterism debate and you can see that. And we actually went back and forth on the topic um, that might be something there that's useful for you. Uh, Flat Ground NEL says, uh, Mike Winger, are you prepared for Matt Dillahunty to go full born naturalism of the gaps on you like he did with Mike like Kona. Um, I, I, you'll see when the time comes. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I mean, I'm just, we have the truth. 
the unfortunate thing is we have to be the representatives of it, right? And so I hope and pray that I could do well in this debate, represent the character of Christ and the truth of Christ, and then also the wisdom of Christ in how I communicate the stuff. I appreciate your prayers. I am going to prepare well and try to be ready for as much as I possibly can. Um, and we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Um, if not, if I fail, you'll expect a video on my channel that goes, why I failed in my debate with Matt Dillahunty. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, all right, from uh, Josie J. Um, how do you think the resurrection of Christ sets Christianity apart from all, all other religions? I think that's a great question, Josie. Um, one of the ways that it sets it apart is Christianity is actually, this is really profound when you think about it. We're actually founded on a historical claim, right? We're, okay, for instance, Muhammad, you're supposed to believe because Muhammad said he was a prophet, right? Jesus, he says, don't believe me because I say so. Read John 5, right? Don't believe me because I say so. He says, believe me because of my works. And then he gives them the chief evidence. He goes, as Noah was three days and, and nights in the heart of the earth, so the son of, or in the whale, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth or in the fish. Don't, I don't want to argue about fishes and whales right now. Um, but this is a historical claim. Christianity is founded on the idea that this event actually happened in time, space, and history, not just this guy said he was from God. So it's way more than that. Jesus is the one who has prophecy foreshadowing and leading up to him. He's the one who has a historical miracle confirming him. And these are two things that nobody else has. It completely sets Christianity apart um, from other religions and other claims. You know, people, I, I, I once told a guy evidence after evidence for the Bible and for the resurrection. And he, and I remember we were standing up at the top of the stairs at my church talking forever. Many times we had these conversations and, and I, I said, man, why don't you give your life to Christ? Why don't you put your trust in Christ? You know, you have, you have more than enough reason. And he says, Mike, I just need more evidence. There's just not enough evidence. And then I thought, okay, you know, I've been, I've been spent enough time defending Christianity with this gentleman. I'm going to ask him about what he believes. So I said to him, well, what do you think? You know, you don't have enough evidence for Christianity, but what do you believe? And he told me, well, I believe in reincarnation. So I asked, okay, well, you seem to have a high standard for evidence. What evidence do you have for reincarnation? And he said, I never thought about that before. Some people only require evidence for the things they don't want to believe. And that unfortunately uh, was the case in this situation. Um, now, later he came to Christ, by the way, he did come to Christ. So that was just part of the process and he ended up coming to the Lord. So it was beautiful, but, uh, but yeah. Um, okay. Number eight, Cole Perkins says, has any atheist ever given you a list of evidence they would expect to see if Jesus actually did arise, uh, from the dead? I've never received an answer. Um, no, I haven't got an answer, but in my experience, these answers are tend to be off the cuff. They tend to be like, Oh, well, I want uh, Emperor Caesar Nero to say that he had seen Jesus and I want it to be recorded. Or Basically, they're just going to make it more evidence than there is. And that just tends to be a way of avoiding the evidence that there is uh, by always saying we need more. Um, yeah. Number nine, Dodger Bend Railway says, I've been told the followers of Christ stole the body. Now, what's interesting is the, 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 the stolen body theory, while it's the, the oldest theory, it is actually one of the worst. Um, the, uh, the idea that body, that the body of Christ was stolen is refuted in particular by the willingness of the disciples and the eyewitnesses to actually suffer for their faith. And this is something that uh, I want to do. I'm going to do a whole video on this one day because recently there's a, a lady, a scholar named Candida Moss who wrote, 
wrote a bunch of stuff trying to say the disciples weren't really persecuted and, and didn't die for their faith. In response to this, uh, we have, I wonder if I have it in here somewhere. It probably fell off the cliff. Um, <laughs> we have a book uh, by uh, Sean McDowell, which I'm working my way through, um, giving us uh, the historical evidence for, this, for, the, for the suffering of those eyewitnesses who... And the, the whole purpose of saying the disciples and eyewitnesses of, of the resurrection that they suffered is to say that they meant it. That's all we're saying. We're not saying this proves Jesus rose. No, no, it's a, it's a piece of the case pointing to the resurrection. But what it proves is that they were serious. They were genuine, meaning they didn't steal the body. Um, so there's, there's a whole case. Maybe I should do a video on did the disciples steal the body. That might be an interesting video to do. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I, I will take a few more questions, you guys. I, I think I can go for about... Uh, eight or nine more minutes. So I don't know if AJ, if you had any more, I should have warned you. If you had a couple more to send me over, you're welcome to do that. Um, I see we have at least a couple skeptics in the audience there. Welcome, you guys. I really appreciate you being here. And I hope that you find this, uh, the chat to be a friendly environment, even though we're going to tell you that we believe Christianity is true and that we're going to try to answer your objections and stuff. Um, <laughs> I like what Johnny says. We need to expose Mike for who he truly is. A true follower of Christ. I like that. Um, I had someone give me a nice compliment the other day. They sent me a message and said they, they searched Mike Winger false teacher and um, and nothing came up as far as like saying I was a false teacher. And I thought, well, that's don't I don't think that'll last. I mean, of course, there's going to be people who say that about everybody. Um, but but they felt good that at least there wasn't like this undercurrent of, <laughs> of, of people coming against me there. So that's nice. Um, yeah, so if you guys have a question uh, in the chat, put it in the chat. I'll, I'll watch for it right now. Question, okay, from Rick Gardner. Who is Matthew 7, 21 through 24 referring to? Let's look at the passage right now. Matthew 7, 21 through 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, um, here's a passage of scripture that different groups will all fight over and they'll all try to claim. So I've recently done some Hebrew Roots content, right? Uh, Hebrew Roots people are going to say that this phrase lawlessness refers to people who are not observing Torah it's Torahlessness. Now, I, I think I've refuted that. I'll, I'll give more information on that. Why? I, I just think that that's not what it means. It just means sin. Um, I could actually, I could actually bring it up if I want here. Let's see. Matthew 23, verse 8. And I wonder if you guys can read this. Um, oh, no, not 23. Matthew 12. Where's the passage? 723. Wow, how did I get 23.8 out of that? Or was it 728? It's one of these verses. Ah, lawlessness. Okay, so here's the word lawlessness. I can make it bigger for you. Just in case this is coming from that, that Hebrew uh, roots perspective. Uh, it's anomian. Uh, anomian. And it means to live lawlessly. This is, this is here, I'll, I'll just give us one of these... Uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament gives us crazy amounts of information, probably way too much for us. Maybe the little kittle might be good. Or we'll do Lunita. Okay, sorry, I'm just bringing it up. I'm going to show you guys the Greek resources that are accessible here on um, Lagos Bible Software, which is what I tend to use. 
so anamia, it's to behave with complete disregard for the laws or regulations of a society, to live lawlessly, lawlessness, the lawless living. Um, they will gather up out of his kingdom all people who cause people to sin and who sin and do lawlessness. In some languages, one may translate it to live as though there were no laws, to refuse completely to obey the laws, or to live as one who despises all laws. So it's just speaking of, of people who are doing sinful things. Now, what people want to do sometimes is they want to grab this term lawless and they want to say it's all about the Torah. It's specifically about Jewish laws. And it is if you're a Jew. But there's there's also, according to Romans, a law the Gentiles have. And them not living to the, according to what they know is right and wrong is them violating the law that's written on their hearts. And that's not the Torah, right? That's a, they have a, They're a law unto themselves. Who don't have the law, they're a law to themselves. So for them, living lawlessly would refer to that. And that's consistent with Romans, consistent with Matthew, and consistent with the usage of the Greek word. Um, so I would say it's not it's not that, uh, but it could refer to ignoring Torah, but not specifically. It could also just be other things. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that generically answering this passage is talking about people who are not really they don't really know christ and they don't really live for christ although they do things in the name of christ and it comes after a passage where it's talking about false prophets and sheeps and wolves clothings and uh wolf and sheep's clothing <laughs> sheeps and wolves clothing that's a that's like some kind of weird kind of evangelism um anyway so it's talking about different kinds of trees this is where this is where jesus is getting into basically a generic statement of a kind of person who claims the name of christ does big miracle type things in the name of Christ, but the fruit of their own lives, their character and the way they live their lives is not reflecting that they actually know Christ. And those Jesus doesn't just say, you didn't do enough good works. He says, I never knew you. The fruit that was not good, it simply was evidence that they didn't know Christ to begin with. Um, so I, I would speak of, of it very generically in that sense. Yeah. Um, okay. I got a couple more questions. I'll, I'll do these and then we'll, uh, then, then I'm going to hand you guys over to the next live stream because I have another live stream we're doing tonight. Um, if you're interested, um, let's see from Leanne waters. She says, uh, want to address the swoon theory. Um, okay. So the swoon theory is the idea that Jesus was only, you know, like what the princess bride says, like mostly dead. Like Jesus didn't really die. He was just mostly dead. Um, this seems to be refuted by several things. First off, um, you don't just mostly die on the cross. Um, there's, there's only one account we have of someone dying and not, or getting on the cross and not dying. And this is actually from Josephus. Also, he records about how friends of his people, he knows were crucified. They were put on the cross and he immediately ran and said, Hey, these are my friends. Please take them off. And he used his, his authority with Rome and his place to get them taken down. Uh, I think it, I think the story is that two of them died, one of them survived, and this was only because they had the best medical treatment and they were taken out and, and medically treated right away off the cross. They did not experience the same kind of tortures Christ experienced. And everybody knew that they were alive and they were doing everything they could to save their lives. And still, they barely made it. How does this uh, relate to Christ? Well, Jesus was severely beaten. According to the record, Christ was severely beaten. He actually died on the cross without anyone killing him directly. But to assure this was happening, the soldiers stabbed him with the, the spear. And this is a historically validated idea. Um, Josephus talks about how they wouldn't let people off the cross until they pierced them, until they stabbed them. This was like something that they would do to confirm that they were dead. So we have like extra 
biblical verification that this was like really a thing the Roman soldier would do. So they stabbed Jesus. That seems historical. He's, he's blood and water pour out that either was the, uh, the, the water sack around the heart, uh, that burst, or it was that his lungs had filled with water and when he died. And so either way, he's definitely dead. There's no way he's alive at this point, but let's pretend he was. And so he goes into the tomb and for three days, he's there without food and without water, you know, for however many hours it was, it wasn't three, it wasn't 72 hours, but he's there for, for a long time with no food and no water. And then he comes out of the tomb somehow when no one expects him to. And somehow this limpy, gimpy Jesus, who's barely alive, he inspires the disciples to think that he is resurrected from the dead. Like the disciples would not say Jesus had raised. They would say, look, he survived. God spared him. They tried to kill him, but he made it through. They would never say he rose from the dead. So we're just back to lying, them conspiratorially lying about things. It's not that different than than the... um, than the uh, uh, the stolen body theory in reality. So it seems to be refuted by those things as well. So there's a few other things for you. I, I hope that helps. Those are This is stuff off the top of my head. There's, there's always more um, that I think about later. And, oh, I should have shared that too. So I, I want you guys to know when I answer questions, especially in Q&A, there's often better answers than what I'm giving you. I'm, I'm giving you what I can recall to try to meet your needs in the moment. Um, but don't think that whatever Mike says is the best answer there can be. There's often better answers that even I discover later on and I go, Ooh, I'm adding that to my arsenal and then I can share it, uh, share it there as well. Um, okay. Last question. And it's from AJ Bernard. (laughs) He says, can you give us some freestyle rapping like vocab did in my recent interview with vocab Malone? We did some freestyle. He did some freestyle rapping. I didn't do any freestyle rapping and it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. Some of you would be offended by it. I respect your conscience. I won't, I won't put it up in front of you, but if you want to see it, it's at the end of the interview with vocab Malone, just type in my name and vocab. It'll pop right up in the, in, in the, it's at the very end of the interview. Vocab did some fun stuff there. Um, yes. Okay. So now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to reveal to you the 20 video project that we were going, we've been working on actually for over a month with these other two YouTubers, Christian YouTubers. And we're kind of excited about, we're hoping that it really takes off and it does something special. But we're not going to reveal it on my channel. We're going to reveal it on What Do You Memes channel, which will be live in about 15 minutes. So the link is in the video description right now. You can click that link. You can open that window. You can wait on it. And I'm just going to uh, go get some water and uh, get ready for that. I Hopefully, we'll see you guys there. Thanks so much for joining me. Last announcement. I'm so sorry, but next week there's no live stream. And this is because I'm actually out of town. Me and my wife are going on a little vacation. And so we will not be around. I won't be able to do a live stream next Tuesday. Um, but that'll be the day when we start putting out these videos one at a time. And so you'll see that in my community posts, I'll be sharing the videos. Um, so hopefully that'll be something for just to bless you guys. In the meantime, I appreciate your guys prayers as I'm continuing to try to make this my full-time ministry. Really? I'm still going to serve at my church, but uh, not on staff. And this will be what I do for my living. Um, God willing, that's the hope. And it's a little awkward. I I don't really want to sit there and I don't want to pressure anybody to give, but if it's on your heart and you want to support this ministry, the door is open for you to do that. Now I've put the donate button on the website. There's a link in the description for that too. And I greatly appreciate it. It's so blesses me to have people coming alongside who believe in what this ministry is doing and see that, um, like God's just, God's been blessing it and he's using it. And I'm humbled to get to be part of it. I'm so grateful. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm over the moon, as they would say. So, yeah, Lord bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening, and hopefully I'll see you in about 15 minutes.